This is episode 19 of the Now Is podcast. My name is Ben Remsen, and the idea of this podcast is to do a recorded version of the concept you might know from Downbeat Magazine's Blindfold Test and The Wire Magazine's Invisible Jukebox, to play tunes for musicians without telling them what they're about to hear and see what they have to say. What follows is the conversation that I had with Matt Lux on the afternoon of March 25th, 2017, in my new living room in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. Matt is a Chicago-based improviser and composer who plays bass in many groups and ad hoc improvised contexts. You're currently hearing me talk over Paw Paw from Contrafact, his album coming out later this year on Astral Spirits, under the name Matt Lux's Communication Arts Quartet. At the end of this interview, you'll hear Harmo Lodge, the brilliantly titled and superlative first track from the brilliantly titled and disappointing third album by Isotope 217, Who Stole the Eye Walkman, which is actually a very good album and only disappointing in contrast to the first two Isotope albums, which are, to me, high points in the history of recorded music. Seriously, a note about this episode. I've interviewed a ton of people who've made excellent recordings, but Matt is the first subject who was responsible for records that, during pivotal years in my musical development, namely college, fundamentally changed my relationship to music. One other note about this episode. Roughly two-thirds of the way through, immediately after a Lee Morgan tune, you'll hear something that might sound like one of my goofy edits. It's actually iTunes inexplicably malfunctioning and stopping a Roy Ayers track the split second after I'd started it. While the purpose of this podcast is not primarily to be a guessing game, let it be noted that that split second was all Matt needed to name that tune. To find out more about Matt's projects, upcoming performances, and that sort of thing, check out mattluxmusic.com. You can find the Now Is podcast in the iTunes store. Perhaps you already have. You can stream it at nowis.org, N-O-W-I-S.org, where you'll find information about all the tracks that I played for Matt. Feel free to also like the Now Is podcast on Facebook. Okay, Matt Lux. I mean, uh, takes me back to a certain time when we sort of discovered this music. Uh, I don't know, 1991 or something. Yeah. Uh, Who's we? Well, Chad and I found it in yeah. our. Chad Taylor. You know, yeah. Found it in our searching, which we were doing a lot of. But then that summer. 91 is when I graduated high school. In August, I started working at Tower Records on Clark Street. Okay. And uh, Jeff Parker also came to work there. Okay. So I met him and we started to play Jeff and his girlfriend Sarah, the trombone player, and Chad and myself would play. But also I would hang out at uh, Jeff's house quite a bit, and we were all really into that electric miles. Yeah, yeah. And we listened to it a lot. Yeah. What were you into about it? You listen to this album, my view. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Okay. Uh, That's what I figured. I. <laughs> I don't know. It was sort of. 
When I was in high school, I studied classical music and straight ahead jazz in my earlier teen years or whatever. But I played R&B all the time. I had a band, like a nine piece band that worked three nights a week. And this music was a reconciliation of the two things, you know? Sure. Uh, also, when I was in high school, I was really uh, deeply involved in the house music scene. And so it was wonderful to have the improvisation, but with some grooves that weren't, that didn't seem ancient, right? you know? Although ironically, this is 20 years old at the time. Right. But it's but still, it's, I mean, it sounded newer than, especially if you think about jazz music at that time. Yeah, yeah. It had been really grabbed by the young lions, so jazz was jazz suits and swing, you know? Yeah. And so here was this music with this improvisation, but guys playing grooves, and it was yeah. like, yes. And it was weird and crazy. Yeah. And chord yeah, progression here. It was everything that yeah. I liked about music. Yeah. Yeah, Live Evil, Dark Magist, Pangea, we wore them shits out yeah. all the time. And, you know, that was a certainly a starting point of the idea when we were doing Isotope was that this already happened 20 years ago. So now let's take all the shit that happened since then yeah. and throw it in too, you right. know? Right. So have just everything's kind of available to you, not ignore. People were ignoring music a lot at that time. I mean, they still do, I guess. But yeah. What do you mean? What are you thinking of? You're thinking of like the young lines ignoring what had happened in the 70s and 80s or something? Yeah. Like, yeah. And so we didn't want to. Yeah. This is a perfect example of not ignoring. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Most of my musical heroes are people who try to shave away as much as possible. Yeah. You know? Of course, I there's things I love. I love Mahavishnu and that shit, which is yeah. just like the opposite yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah. But really what gets me is trying to make the point as concisely as possible. Right. And I think my friends at that time, who are all mainly still my friends, that's all sort of where our heads were at. Like, right. let's just get the bare bones. Plus, most of us, not all of us, because some of us are technical, brilliant players, but a lot of us weren't. So it was yeah. like, you know, do do with what you have. Right. So. Totally. Right. I mean, this track also, like, you know, the bass player is Michael Henderson, who, like, I mean, I don't know what he could do other than play R&B type stuff, but, like, maybe he was much more virtuosic than I realized, but, like, he definitely, like, I mean, he came from playing, like, funk and R&B. Yeah. And so he brings this sensibility of like, kind of like stripped down, no bullshit kind of thing. It's when uh, maybe 
six months ago or eight months ago, I played a gig with Dave Bryant. The, he played keyboards in uh, Ornette's later bands. And we were talking about Michael Henderson. And he was telling me about an interview where uh, Keith Jarrett was talking shit sort of being like Miles started to play some ballad and you know Michael Henderson didn't know the tune he's not a jazz musician so he wasn't playing the ballad and Jarrett was getting all pissed off yeah. but Dave Bryant was like who gives a fuck when it's Michael Henderson putting this thing underneath yeah. like that's worth more than all of the you know a bass player playing the exact yeah, right know. harmonies according to jazz school or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not old enough to be alive at that time. So there are certain people of a certain age who can speak to it in a different way than I can. But certainly, to my ears, if somebody was trying to sell out, yeah. this is not what you would do. <laughs> yeah. Especially considering that if Miles would have kept wearing his suits yeah. and kept playing ballads, he was inarguably the most successful jazz musician of, he didn't need any selling out. Yeah. When I hear this music, I don't hear an appeal to mass audiences. Yeah. Now maybe that era was a different era, you well, know what I mean? Pop music is Jimi Hendrix, yeah. So it's different. Yeah. But I st I just can't see it, man. Like, you could sell out, and it would. I think I could write you a script to sell out, and it wouldn't include making such fucking freaky records. Yeah. You know Twenty what I mean? minute psychedelic kind of yeah. masterpieces. Yeah. Sure. 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 Cool. I always, when I hear that argument, it it just seems like the most vapid thing to me like you know Stanley Crouch talking about it it's like have you ever listened to that record man like have you ever listened to that record man like have you ever listened to that record man like that's not how you sell out yeah yeah you know is it ascension yeah it's the so maybe confusing making more confusing because it's uh the other, the second, it's actually the first take, but it's the one that wasn't on the record. Okay. But it's the one that Coltrane said he preferred, I don't know. So... It's pretty similar to the other one. Yeah. The reason that I wasn't able to call it right away is because this is a record that I never, ever listened to. Okay. Because it was the record that I discovered on accident. Yeah that turned me into who I am. Okay. It's a very, very important record. Yeah. So and it's kind of too heavy for me to like put, I never listened to this record. Yeah. It's like a, it's a special magical yeah. thing, you know? Uh, so you must have listened to it more than once if it changed who you were. Or was you know, I... I listened to it twice the day that I listened to it the first time. Okay. 
And I then I listened to it with Chad. Maybe one or two times after that, but right away I sort of whatever it was was so special that I had to put it away. Uh, what was it? That well, was the special? the story's kind of funny. Okay. I was at my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Okay. I was at her house, and her mother is a very hip lady. Okay. And I was going through her records one day, and it's when I was still, I don't know, I must have been 16. Whoa. And I was studying my straight ahead jazz, and I see this record. What's this? One of the jazz records I didn't know in her collection. Yeah, and you John knew Coltrane, Coltrane. Coltrane artists. Well, my thought when I saw the cover was, oh, this is the guy who would lose the tenor battles with Sonny Rollins. <laughs> and I really only knew Train's earlier stuff yeah. because I wasn't listening to, I wasn't even listening to 60, 61 Train. Yeah, yeah. I knew it from like 58 Train. Sure. Which, whatever, wasn't, I wasn't in that place, yeah. you know. I liked uh, Art Blakey and Charlie Parker yeah. only. And then I put this record on, man, and it was like, for, I mean, my whole life changed. Well, how, period. What about it made your whole life change? I knew that that's what I wanted to do. That was the highest expression of musicianship I'd ever heard. Yeah. And everything else that I had done or knew about became almost completely uninteresting to me that afternoon. Well, it was that heavy <laughs> to me. Yeah. And uh, it was in the summer, I remember, because I wasn't seeing Chad every day. And I called him and I was like, man, I was like, I heard this shit and I, I don't even know. Like, I gotta bring you this record. You gotta hear this record. And he was like, man, he's like, I heard a record and you gotta hear this record. <laughs> what was It was Airtime by Air. Uh. And we traded records and blew each other's mind, yeah. and that was sort of the beginning of the whole thing. Like, yeah. okay, you can do this. We need to do this. Yeah. How do you do this? Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, but it was like, it was very super heavy thing, you know? Yeah. And it even, I don't know, it changed who I was fundamentally. Like, I would, before that, I would get into trouble, things like that. I didn't have any interest in shit like that. Like, all I wanted to do was play this music, man. Well, like, yeah. gave a purpose and focus yeah. to my life. And it's still, I mean, I don't want to play that music anymore. Yeah. But. It tuned me to be who I am. Yeah. So it's probably the most important record ever well, to so me. So as I'm now 
forcing you to kind of like talk over the most important record to you ever playing quietly in the background, which is, um, could you, is there, would you be interested in trying to articulate like some of the things about it that did that, or is it just the totality of the expression? I, I think, I mean, to take into account of being a, a teenage kid, sure. Never hearing anything even remotely like this. Yeah. It was just a, a doorway. The idea that men, humans can go in a room and do something like this. Yeah. It was just unfathomable to yeah. me. Like, what? what? Yeah. But at the same time, somebody could hear, you know, I started to listen to this music incessantly and my parents were like, what, what is this? Why, you know, why are we hearing this? But to me, it was like such a strong state. Like, I would bet all my money that these were people who you'd want to spend time with, like spiritual people. Like you heard this in the music in a way that I hadn't heard in music, yeah. you know? There isn't anything else but spirit and soul, you know? Yeah. And that's that's the things that interest me the most in the world. Sure. Yeah. And to hear it condensed and a thing that's created just out of that rather than a bunch of predetermined ideas. Of course, you still have plenty of predetermination in this yeah. music and tradition and all these other things. Yeah. The blues is in there forever, and Africa is in there, and the most advanced harmonic ideas are in there, but abstracted in personal ways, you know? Yeah. Uh, and But then to just have that, like, slammed into your yeah. young ear hole, and you don't know what to do about it, it yeah. was like, fuck. Air. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was the. I think it was really fortuitous that I heard this music at the same time as the energy music. Yeah. Because the Chicago aesthetic was so different. Right but equally influential and it always kept a balance like you never wanted to go even as a young person who all you can do is try to ape what you want to be yeah i never wanted to go over too far i didn't want to try to sound like energy music guy because there was always this Chicago influence plus there is something very Chicago about this music yeah like how's what like what is it <laughs> I don't I don't know it's an interesting question yeah it's I think it's pretty intangible but the music that was being made in Chicago in that era I don't know. 
And it's really... Well, it's certainly the opposite of energy music. Not the opposite, but the, very different from it. something like Ascension. It's much more like restrained and sort of strategized and I don't know. I'm, yeah. Things like that occur to me. I don't know if that's what it was for you. I mean, certainly those aspects are why I was happy to have the two influences, sure. you know. You don't always have to roar for 45 minutes. You can write a simple tune mm -hmm. and arrange it in a really unique way. Yeah. So those ideas all came into play. But there was even something else. I don't know if it was like a meta thing or just the fact that I was a Chicagoan and this music bore some... I don't think I would have known it was from Chicago if I yeah. didn't find out, but at the yeah. same way, it gave me something where I was like, oh, this is my music. Right. This is Chicago music, and I would like to be a part of this thing that exists, yeah. you know? Uh, Fred Hopkins was one of the absolute focuses of my study for a long time. What were you observing from him? I mean, he's one of the most playful musicians ever. He just, the spirit of happy experimentation, being able to play things that are kind of obtuse, but put them in in a way where it sounds really natural and it always sounds like fun and when he plays a groove it's a groove like yeah. even though it's jazz yeah you can dance when fred hopkins is playing yeah you know and that's something to me especially at that time because I danced a lot and enjoyed music that elicits dancing. It's still something, if there's anything I miss, it's not having a lot of avenues where I play and people are dancing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that was the thing about players that do that, players that you can dance to that music. When I start to hear it, I get a little thing <laughs> and I'm feeling it. That's what I like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. Even in a completely abstract concept, you can still, yeah. right now, you know what I mean? Yeah. You could play this if you were at a party that was sophisticated enough and people would be on the floor moving, yeah. you know? Joe Clausell could play this record and be rocking a club right now somewhere in the world yeah. if he wanted to. I don't recognize this. Yeah, I mean, I'm. Okay. No reason I would assume you'd know it. I wasn't going to play you all softballs. <laughs> uh, who is it? Uh, well, it's a William Parker album. Okay. Oh, so Hamid? Yeah, it's Hamid. Okay. Um, and it's Rob Brown and Lewis Barnes, who are. Okay. I only know from playing on the William Parker albums. I yeah, really I don't know they're playing very well. Yeah. Which is why I didn't hit it. Yeah. Uh, but, and like I said in the break that was going to get edited out, I, since you're talking about a combination of improvising and dancing, I figured that this is, uh, you playing Hamid especially would be kind of an interesting uh, intersection. So yeah. 
Well, Hamid certainly can make people dance. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's incredible. He's a link to, you know, played with Don, those, uh, those Fred Hopkins, I'm mean, not Fred Hopkins, Fred Anderson records, like that Moore's record Good. was a record that I got relatively early. I was trying, what was his, his given name? I think it was like Hank. Hank. Yeah. yeah. And he was Hank Drake on yeah. that record. Yeah. yeah. That rec that's a badass record, man. Yeah. But he's always somebody, you know, elicits the spirit, plays beautifully, yeah. you know. And him and William, that's like probably the the rhythm section that's existing today, yeah. I think. Yeah. The two of them are really... So tell me, if you don't mind, like, directly uh, commenting, like, or something here. What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean by, like... I mean, they they listen to each other. They go places. Like, what do they do? This. I mean, they're both super strong players that are able to. I mean, their approach to time is pretty similar. Mm -hmm. But I know that they're both headstrong because they're masters. Mm -hmm. But. They're also both super sensitive because they're masters. And when you have two people at that level of mastery who seem, you know, Hamid's from Chicago, William's from New York, but yet there's so much common cultural language between them. Uh, you know, they even kind of dress similar. Yeah. You know? Sure. Um, but it's just, you know, two masters who then really sound like they want to play together. It's not like, a, you know, somebody hires two people for their festival thing. That happens all the time. But these are guys who clearly have some sort of deeper relationship, and that comes out when you hear it. Yeah. You know? Uh, when you say their uh, rhythmic concept is similar, I think, I think that's how you said it. Uh, what do you mean by no, that? No, their time, their the way they play time. Okay, what do you mean? Well, that's, that's a pretty ephemeral thing to explain. Sure. It, I every, I mean. Everybody plays time. Not everybody. Great musicians all have an approach to time that's unique. Sometimes two musicians' idea of time doesn't work. Some musicians, even great musicians, are like, I'm gonna play, this is how the time is. Uh, and if you don't get with it, you're wrong. You know, Ray Brown was famous for being like that. The drummer just kinda had to be in his pocket or it wasn't gonna happen. But when you hear these guys, you really feel like even though if they play separately, their time is always centered and wonderful, they really hit when they're together. Like, I can't think, I would rather hear both of them with each other than with anybody else. That's not to say William sounds great when he plays with Warren Smith, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not that, but when they get together, there's a special thing that's created. Yeah. And being a 
a rhythm section man, I like that. I like to hear a rhythm section rather than just two guys on a job. Here. Just planting with Duke? Nope. Actually, that's interesting. It's 38. And didn't. Is Jimmy Blanton already. That's about 38 is when he started playing with Ellington? I feel like I, I, used, I should know that. Probably. Because yeah, I was just a. Because he was dead 41. Yeah. So it'd have to be 38, 39. Yeah. Anyway. Was it Jack Kirby? Who is it? No. Um, on who's playing bass? Uh, the bass player is Walter Page. Oh, so it's bassy. Uh, it's not. It's a bunch of bassy people. It's Lester Young. Okay. It's uh, the Kansas City Sessions. Oh. And the tune is actually called Page and the Devil, which <laughs> maybe presumably is a reference to Walter Page. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it was a, a feature. You don't hear Walter never got too many features. Yeah. Which is why I wouldn't have thought right away. Okay. You know? Um, I mean, big one, uh, certainly one of my favorites, when I think of swinging, that's what you want to hear. Yeah. Uh, and Lester is, if not my favorite musician of all time, certainly right up there. Right. So that's what Dorling told me that. Yeah, <laughs> that's, well, and I, I, I picked this randomly based on that. But uh, what what about him? I mean, nobody puts more story into notes yeah. than him. It's not. It's not notes, even. You know what I mean? He goes way past notes uh, I especially like the later Lester which everybody else doesn't like and gets knocked all the time yeah but it was a thing when he was young there was still bravado and he was fighting to have this spot but at the end he was just playing something what he felt like and yeah I just love that. But it's funny, I could probably count on one hand how many features Walter Page got on a record. Yeah. It's nice to hear him. Because yeah. that's such a beautiful, just wood and gut. Yeah. Is it Art Tatum? Yeah. Slam? Yeah. Okay. I didn't I didn't spend too much time with Art Tatum. Uh, Everett Barksdale's name of the guitar okay. player. I don't know outside of this. Yeah. Um Obviously, he's a pivotal figure in the music. You're talking about Tatum. 
Tatum. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, an influence on jazz musicians moving into the realms that they did after him. Yeah. Uh, you know, the story of Bird taking a job as a dishwasher in a restaurant just because Tatum played there and he yeah. could hear him. Um, but there's something, I, there's always something weird to me with Tatum, like, cheesy or something. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get beat up sure. by Tatum people, but I don't, I don't think I own Because he's so virtuosic, he does too much or something? No, I mean, I can't, I don't know anybody who can play as much piano as Tatum before or after, but there's certain like Rococo things that he does that I just really, yeah. I, I never really dug it that much. Yeah, 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 you too know? embellished. Well, so I didn't pick this for him, it was actually... For Slam? Yeah, so, that, and specifically to give credit where credit's due, Jamie Branch said I should play you Slam Stewart. I don't know if there's any particular reason aside from just him being like a... I mean, he... He's so amazing that he... People don't even talk about him because he's kind of off in this weird zone. Yeah. And he's... He's a very interesting figure because he's ostensibly he was a swing musician, right? Yeah. That era. But his ear was amazing. He could play with Tatum and he was able to play with Beboppers. He played the those records with Don Bias are amazing. And then he also has this ridiculous unique and incredible style of playing the bow yeah. that again maybe before or after has never really been matched there's you know stanley clark christian mcbride they're jazz musicians who can play the shit out of the bass without question but slam stewart was doing it at a time when it was a lot more difficult physically and to come up to invent this style out of nothing is one of the great yeah. acts of creativity. Can you describe the style? What's the aspect of the style? Well, first of all, no jazz bass player had that technical ability with a bow up to that point and then arguably for many years later. He plays, to me, he plays better with the bow than Paul Chambers, and that's another 20 years, Yeah. you know? Yeah. Mingus could play with the bow in a beautiful and unique way, but not the way Slam does it. Also, Slam solo his, style, solo, yeah. wanna... he sings along, yeah. but an octave higher. Yeah. Who made that? Like, it's fucking amazing. Yeah.
records show that Matt is dancing along with his head. Slam's so bad, man. Beautiful sound and a super unique voice. Nobody, nobody sounds like that. Major Holly came after him and created a similar thing, but is Slam's thing, and it's, I mean, he has his own language. A bass player having their own language as a soloist at this era was, you know, also yeah. him and Blanton, but everybody talks about Blanton, nobody talks about Slam, you know, and it's too bad. Well, because, that's gonna change now. Yeah. <laughs> Monk Montgomery. Yeah. I can't remember when I first heard this record. Probably 93 or something. And I just saw it and of course I was going to buy it. Yeah, based Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> there was no question that that record was being bought. Um, Did you know he was Wes Montgomery's brother at the time or anything? I knew that he had, he was really the first adopter of the electric bass okay, in yeah, jazz yeah. and played with Lionel Hampton's band. Yeah. I didn't really know his playing. Yeah. I had heard some of that Hampton stuff, but he was just doing the job, you know. I did not expect this to be the sound of this record. Well. And I was super happy. Yeah. What what made you happy about it? What do you like about it? He has this again a super personal sound. This isn't. He's not playing like somebody else. You know what I mean? His playing is gourd. His solos are just brilliant. You know, not super technical, but again, he's playing an instrument that to even play this lucky yeah. you know what I mean it takes effort to play on some fender bass with some flat wound strings jacked up super high yeah. you know the sound is beautiful and to hear him get out front I mean and he's, he's not fucking around at all <laughs> bass players are not famous for being able to solo yeah and he really, on this record, it's like, you see that he's a very heavy cat. Yeah. yeah. Another guy who people don't talk about a lot, other than relating the fact that he brought the electric bass out, but he also could play his ass off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know anything about him other than this record, honestly, but I'm curious. I mean, he's, everything else where he's just playing bass, yeah. Super solid yeah. bass player doing the job yeah, yeah, of yeah, being yeah. a great bass player. Right. But stepping out front. Yeah. 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 So I, you seem to be a real, uh, you seem to be a real booster for the bass. Like everybody loves their instrument, but it seems like you're like embrace the kind of like underdog aspect of the bass. Is this like, does this like record really fill you with pride? <laughs> yeah, sort of, man. I mean, I. Especially if you contextualize it that this dude took a lot of shit 
for playing electric bass. And he basically was like, fuck you. I like this thing, and yeah. I'm going to play it. Him and Steve Swallow are guys who were double bass players, but saw this new instrument not only just as like an excuse to not lug around a bass, yeah. but were like, this is an interesting thing. This is yeah. a different beast, yeah. and I want to play it. And they stopped. A lot of people double. I double. Yeah. But they were like, no. I play this. And they quit playing double bass. That's some shit. Especially yeah. Monk did it. I mean, the instrument was fucking brand new. Leo yeah. Fender just made it up. Yeah. And Monk Montgomery was like, yeah. Give me that. I'll yeah. take it. Yeah. You know? That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. But I'm sure it also helps to grow up with your brother's West Montgomery and you just hear yeah. a bad motherfucker playing guitar all the time. Right. You're like, I want to, let me get in on some of that. <laughs> yeah. You know? Get an amp. Man. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it's hard to play. I mean, especially in that era before the 70s came with the pickups and stuff. Playing lines like that on a double bass was prohibitively difficult. Yeah. You know, some people could do it, but it was yeah. rare. Yeah. I mean, he really, even though it's just this record, he's one of my favorite electric bass soloists. He's playing music. He's not playing uh, technical exercises on the instrument. He sounds like another contemporary jazz musician of his era, but choosing to play on this bastard instrument that nobody had any respect for. Yet. Yet. <laughs> yeah. That's Mingus. Nope. What? It's not. Is that Oscar Pettiford? Nope. Who is it? Wilbur Ware. go. <laughs> Why do you say that? There you go. Well, it couldn't have been too many people yeah. with the authority and the sound. Yeah. And I just, you don't hear Wilbur very much, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Sadly under-recorded. But, also certainly one of my heroes. Yeah. Jackie? Yep. Is that John Jenkins? And Johnny Griffin? Oh, okay. This the... What record is this? Uh, the Chicago Sound. Okay. So this I is... I own this record. Yeah. It's interesting, this is not um, something that was on my first thing I thought of, but uh, this is Josh Berman's recommendation for something to play so I don't know if you have any thoughts about what he was thinking you'd say about it. Well he knows that I love Wilbur. Right. He probably knows that I had this record because I probably bought it at the record mark when he worked there. <laughs> From him, okay, yeah, there you go. Uh, I mean, you, Wilbur's one of those guys that's super amazing 
and traversed the eras wonderfully, you know. Before he died, William Parker studied with him. He was playing really modern music up until he died. He was always playing super modern music. A really great Chicago bass player, uh, Carl Siegfried, did his, I think it was a doctoral dissertation on him. Mm -hmm. And he was kind enough to uh, give me a copy. Oh, cool. And it's really the most thorough biography on Wilbur, which is great because there's no scholarship on him sure. at all. Um, so what's cool about, what he, about his playing? He has one of the greatest tones of all time in my opinion, for me. Uh, he's a real practitioner of freedom. He changes, his approach to playing changes is unusual and very creative. Uh, What's the approach? I mean... I don't know if that's too big a question. I mean, to... Yeah. I could... He, he plays a lot of substitutions in the bass the same way that bebop soloists, the way that they think about harmony is the same way he was thinking about harmony, but he was doing it at a very early stage in Chicago. Um, and the fact that he stayed open-minded is amazing, you know. Uh, I have a Walt Dickerson record from 1973 that him and Jamaluddin Takuma are cool. the bass players. Whoa. Heavy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I'm from Philly. I love, I so from, love from this and stuff way before this, him playing with Monk, he's my favorite bass player to hear, even though it's criminally under-recorded. The way he dealt with Monk is the best. To me, I love it. And he just, you know, it's a physical. I thought it was Mingus because that, the power of the sound, there's not, you know, Jimmy Garrison, Mingus, Wilbur, Israel Crosby. There's only a handful of guys who had that sound and power. It's a Lee Morgan record? Yeah. Is it Last Date? Or is uh, it Last, last Session? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I forget I, what the I context didn't, was. I didn't hear this record until... 2005. Okay. I thought that Live at the Lighthouse was the last record. Okay. Which I love that record. And I love Lee Morgan. He just kept getting better and more interesting to me yeah. all the time, right. you know? Um, and because of his sad early demise, he's always one of those what if questions. Yeah. And uh, when Rob convened the, the Exploding Star Orchestra, Bill Dixon, and he met Bill. So maybe it was even later than 2005, because it was Bill that told him about this record. Okay. 
And then he got it. And he was like, dude, check this shit out. And it was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Like, I think I only listened to this record. I like listened to it like 40 times in a week. Yeah. Like, it's all I wanted to hear. You know? Well, nice. It's just beautiful. Like, yeah. And this music is like, you know, when it first started, I was like, okay. I was like, maybe this is like, is he playing some like Return to Forever first record thing? Yeah, yeah. Then I was like, oh, maybe it's like Herbie Mwandishi era uh -huh. type thing that I don't know. But then when the breath of the thing came out, there's only, I mean, I th this is a really special record. Yeah. And it, in a way, it's doubly funny that I got to this record because of Bill Dixon because this record has a certain sonic there you know that record that's a split where Bill Dixon has one side of the record and Archie Shep has the other side yeah. it's a really great record I can't remember maybe 61 or something is oh. Archie's first thing okay okay but I guess they had a falling out right before they were gonna make the record and so they were like, oh, we're not gonna work together but we have this contract, so okay. you take a side and I take a side. Cool. And Bill's side is one of my favorite things because it captures the sound of New York in that era for me, in my imagination, because I was not in New York in the early 60s. Sure. But that's the way that I like to imagine it sounding. And this is the way I like to imagine the shit sounding in, what, 74, I think? Uh, I think it's 71. 71. Yeah. That's how yeah. it sounds like. Uh -huh. What is that? How? What is, can you describe that? What is this? Is it fusion? Yeah. Is it straight ahead jazz? Is it free jazz? Yeah. Is it spiritual jazz? I don't know. It's all of that. Or none of it, or one of them if you want it to be. But it's personal, yeah. you know? It just kind of, it has everything and you can't nail it because it's it's real it's not a formula it's like this is what lee sounded like and he had these people making these sounds and the shit is just great and the shit is just great and the shit is just great great and the shit is great great and the shit is great great yeah you know jimmy merritt yeah and actually so that's exactly it jimmy merritt uh wrote this tune yeah so back in the in the realm of like pigeonholing you as the the bass <laughs> bass booster, uh, does this anything about this like sound like a tune written by a bass player? Do well, hopefully that's not a thing. Yeah. As far as uh, something, Jimmy Merritt is a exceptional musician, and his writing transcends the instrument sure. by far. The thing that's incredible about Jimmy at this period 
was playing this electric double bass. Yeah. And a sound like nobody, you know. Again, the thing that I like is when you just sort of carve your own path. It sounds like a weird rubber band thing or something. Yeah, you know totally. what I mean? <laughs> um, and I th I don't know. I've never met guys like uh, Buster Williams, Stanley Clark, or any of those people. But in, in my way of thinking, I think that Jimmy must have influenced those guys to some degree. Yeah. You know? From which records? Or which? Or just, you mean, from his playing? Ha he was going towards that sound that those guys all wound up owning really hard. Uh, and he, again, somebody who doesn't get talked about very much. But what all his playing, I mean, live at the Lighthouse, shit is just great, you know? Perfect capturing of the, the sound of the time, time of the sound, whatever, you know? Uh, and he, he didn't die too long ago. And his no son idea. is the bass player on the Conan O'Brien show. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I did the Conan show one time, and I went up to him specifically just to be like, man, your dad, I super dug your dad. And he was like, oh, man. It's like nobody... Nobody ever says... Oh, nobody that's awesome. came up to me on the show and said... I was like, man. You were the first one. Yeah. <laughs> so... Roy Ayers. <laughs> yeah, that's all you're going to hear. You're just <laughs> I know that hit very well. Yellow ribbons. That's my shit. You're sorry. I, I wanted to get you to sing the whole part. Yeah. Alphonse Muzan yeah, that's on right. drums. Recently deceased. Woo! Lord. So what's what's good about it? What's good Tell about, about it? it? Yeah. Shit. What isn't good about this? I understand. This is a banger. But especially Alphonse's bass drum. Yeah. Always made this song for me. But this is just I love Roy Ayers. That's like the sound of being in high school to me. Yeah. You know? Uh, and these bands, I don't know a lot of the people in these bands. Yeah. Um, I wasn't reading the liner notes on these records too hard, and a lot of the times it was names that you wouldn't recognize. Yeah. But music like this, I mean, I, I love music like this. When I was, before I got into my free jazz mode, like I said, I had an R&B band and we played in this neighborhood. There was a place on Sheffield that was a pool hall that I used to play right down the block here yeah. uh, at Wolfram. Okay. Uh, oh, that's really like a block away from here. Yeah. Awesome. I used to play that shit all the time and play Sometime play this tune, I think, 
But what about fucking vibraphone distortion solo? Yeah. That's pretty fucking hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's I that remember, is what that is. Yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't I thought that was a keyboard. That's a vibraphone. Being, I remember playing this for Adeshevitz totally yeah. fucking him up. Yeah. <laughs> but that bass drum in this song, yeah. man. Like somebody pounding on your door, mad. <laughs> right before I started to go on tour, I briefly worked for the federal government. Okay. And one of the guys I worked with is, is a guy, Eric Ricks, who had or has probably a radio show on uh, HPK. He didn't have a show at the time, but he's an older guy, like a Vietnam vet guy, still wore his army shirt at the job. But I was young, I met him, talk about music, say, oh, you like this, you like this, I liked all these things. And he's like, he's like, do you know this record? I was like, I don't know it. Or he's like, He's like, you like Earth, Wind & Fire? I was like, I love Earth, Wind & Fire. He's like, my favorite thing is their first record. He's like, what do you know about the first record? I'm like, oh, you know, time is on your side, blah, blah, blah. He was like, he's like, that's not the first record. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he brought me the first two Earth, Wind & Fire records that were on Warner mm -hmm. before they went to Capitol or the other way around, whichever it is. And those records completely fucked up my world. When it was still like an AACM kind of a, they had just been in the Pharaohs and now they were doing that. That's like my favorite shit, like a groove and people freaking out yeah. on the groove. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite thing probably. I mean, it sounds like some Hal Russell type of thing. Yeah. Also Chicago. but way early. More contemporary than Hal? Well, I mean, not that Hal Russell like existed, you know, but um, this is 67 or maybe 68. Oh, art on sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as the theatrical part yeah. comes in, you can tell. It's that or like a bicycle wheel, or a bicycle horn or a harmonica or something. <laughs> it gives it away. I mean, one of the great bands of all time. Yeah. But so this specifically, I mean, there's so much Art Ensemble. I feel like I've played Art, art Ensemble for like half the people I've done this for, but this particularly, I wanted to play you as an example of more or less what you just said, which is like people freaking out over a groove. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're certainly masters of the form. Yeah. Just to put things in an interesting context, the art ensemble played at my elementary school when I was in second grade. Holy shit. And it was very <laughs> Where is this frightening. Art? Where is this? Walt Disney, uh, Irving Park and Lakeshore Drive. Okay. Um, it was like, it was an experimental public school. Okay. And it was, I, I don't know what the culture, that's the only elementary school I ever went to, but 
It was different than all the other elementary schools in the city, and it was run by a lot of very serious black power people. Okay. Um, and so we learned a lot about black culture, which was great. The art ensemble scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Dudes in face paint. Yeah. Like playing some music that didn't make any sense. Like that's all I remember is that I was really like super weird. But it's interesting to me is that just simple coincidence or did that plant a seed that needed time to grow? Yeah. We do, I can't really know. Yeah. Art Ensemble is one of my favorite bands now. Yeah. And to think that I saw them when I was a little kid yeah. is really weird. So that would have been like the late 70s or yeah. no? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. What was it like? I mean, do you like... I mean, I don't... You know, the thing that I remember is the face paint and the banner. Great black music, ancient to the future. Because... I didn't, that just intrigued me, you know? But they're so, I mean, you pretty much have everything you want out of music in the art ensemble. They can do it all really well, and they made, you know, shifted their own paradigm, which is a remarkable accomplishment for any bunch of humans. Oh, it's too regular. Who is it? I can't tell. Uh, you, it's funny, it's five players, obviously, you mentioned three of them already in <laughs> talking about it. It's, so it's a Sonny Rollins record. Oh, okay, well that makes sense. And uh, with Paul Chambers and Art Blakey, both of whom have come up at various okay. times throughout, so it's kind of... Who's, who's playing trombone then? JJ. JJ? Yeah. And Horace Silver. Um, I don't know, it's a famous thing, I'm almost remiss to say it in the content of a podcast, but I can cut this one out too. I, I don't really like Sonny Rollins. That's what Josh Berman said. Yeah. <laughs> I, wanted, um, I wanted to hear why. Well, it's funny because as the years go by, like... This, for example, fucking sounded great. Uh, and I always liked East Broadway Rundown, and I always liked uh, Live at the Vanguard, but mainly because it was Elvin and Wilbur Ware. Okay. There's something really regular and perfect about Sonny Rollins that I didn't like. But every year there seems to be more stuff that pops up where I hear something and I'm like, fuck, that's great, what is it? Sonny Rollins. Right. So my, my dislike of Sonny Rollins, I think, is maybe dissolving with age. But I don't, I own the three records of Sonny Rollins and have not listened to him very much outside of that. Yeah. Um, obviously, he's great, 
Sure. Me not liking him doesn't have any... He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. <laughs> He's great. <laughs> and besides, it's like, it's nice. I mean, I love hearing about people not liking stuff because it's like everyone's listening is an incredibly... People who are like really listening to music have like incredibly individual things that they hear, which is part of my motivation for this yeah. whole thing. And so it's like, if you just like everything, or especially if you liked everything that's canonical, then like, do you really like any of it? You know, it's like, right. if you seriously have opinions, then you will like sort of arbitrarily not like some particular thing. I mean, I always say when it comes up, because people get super mad, things I really don't like is Sonny Rollins and Bach. Oh shit. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. And people get really like bent Bach. out of shape. Well, that's like you don't like God or something, which, you know, yeah, I don't like God. Both either. of those people have that sort of stature. And when people, if I'm forced to release that information to people and then they get mad at me, Damn. I always say the same thing. I go, take into consideration that I really love Culture Club sure. and I don't like that. So you have to take whatever I say with a grain of salt. Yeah. It doesn't have any bearing on the greatness of Bach and Sonny Rollins. Sure. I just don't like to listen to Bach sure. or Sonny Rollins. Yes. Except for especially East Broadway Rundown. It's a pretty great record. Yeah, I don't know what this is. It's Prefuse 73. Okay. So which which record? First one, um, Up Rocks and yeah, vocal okay. studies and Up Rock narratives. Yeah, so I, this is a bit of a random one, but it was I was thought of it because when I, it's sort of biographical about me as much as anything. When I first heard Isotope, uh, in which would have been like 99 or something, um, I actually heard it as coming out of like more of a jazz thing or slash like kind of like a whatever indie rock or what people were calling post post-rock or whatever right. at the time, whatever that meant. Um, and then like a year or two later, whenever this record came out, and also just generally the kind of like Warp Records stuff at the time seemed like it was coming out of like hip hop or like techno electronic kind of music thing. But then these two styles were to some extent meeting in the middle a little bit in some right. of the strategies. So I just, I don't know, I guess I was just curious about like that, those sort of like genre collisions that were happening at the time. Well, it's, it's interesting that Johnny texted me because Johnny was the person who first played me this record. Okay. I remember... Let's say John Herndon just because, you know, yeah, for the John listening... Uh, Johnny played the fuck out of these records. Yeah. I heard him a lot. And we were all, I mean, everybody in Isotope, except maybe Rob, wasn't into hip-hop until he was hanging out with us. But the rest of us all that was in our crates and we know that music yeah you know um i think you hear it a little bit in isotope not yeah. too much though there was the infamous uh isotope with uh cannibal ox show at symphony space okay i don't know about this what um, happened? which was really weird and awkward because they basically broke up right before oh. so instead of it was still billed as isotope and cannibal ox but it was only vast vortal wasn't there but he brought camu tao with him okay and uh a couple other guys but camu was my favorite dude he was i liked him better than vast um 
that was really interesting, especially I think that they were surprised that we had learned to play those songs like well, well you know. So you or, were the band? Yeah. Yeah, well. And we played, I think there were three or four of the songs off the first Cannibal Ox record that we like made arrangements of and like had the shit well. Well, and you hadn't rehearsed before. There was no rehearsal. Yeah. We just got to the gig and yeah. they showed up and they were sort of like, you know, who are these weird motherfuckers? <laughs> and we went into the shit and they, it was like, oh, and they rocked it. And then we played some of our shit and then we were just like, like, sort of like self-sample where we would just hold the groove of something instead of moving it just repeat a bar over and cut things do shit with the time and uh it was it was interesting it would have been nice if it could have actually if we could have rehearsed and worked on something but yeah. they didn't have a budget for that sure but we all we all really like hip-hop and it was influencing us a lot at the time because it was a very fertile period, sure. you know. And there was a lot of that when we were traveling in that isotope era. There were a lot of groups. I, it was sort of popular at the time to try to push boundaries and yeah. get stuff in. And that era ended really quickly, it yeah. seemed. What's uh, up? How'd that happen? You know, uh, the pendulum swings and all of a sudden it's white stripes is yeah. what is cool yeah and people trying to do something else is not cool and whatever that's i guess that's just how shit goes but it was a that you know the end of the 90s from the middle to the end was a pretty interesting fertile period and it was funny because i was really young I'm considerably young, like Chad, Taylor, Josh Abrams, myself, are all born in 73. Okay. We're somewhat younger than the people who we're associated with. Uh, Parker's six years older than me, Johnny and Rob are eight, Dan is nine, Doug is 12, you know. So I don't know how it was for them, but for me, I just thought that's how shit was and was supposed to be. Yeah. It was like, now I'm a grown up, I'm participating in this music, we're pushing shit, we're trying to do interesting things. Um, and then when that era ended and that music stopped being uh, interesting to people, I was really sort of, I was like crestfallen. Yeah. I was like, wait a second. This was just going good, you yeah. know, we're gonna get into some shit. And now nobody likes this music anymore. Challenging went out of fashion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was the thing.
She's a trombone player. Yeah. She fell and fucked up her arm, so she just switched the trombone around oh, and well, played play it the other way. What is she? She's on the first Isotope record, and she's on the Chicago Underground Orchestra record. That's it. What the fuck? She was so bad. I mean, she is she's a brilliant musical person. Yeah. But as far as her playing trombone, that's the only record of it. And it's a shame because she was so fucking killer. 